good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am honored to have with us Sandra Seaton, a Murray County native. Miss Seaton is an award-winning author, playwright, and librettist. Her plays have been performed in cities throughout the country, including New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and her libretto for the solo opera from the Diary of Sally Hemings, set to the music by Pulitzer Prize, Grammy Award-winning 2007 Composer of the Year winner, William Balcom, has been performed at such venues as Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, the Herbst Theater in San Francisco, and the Rialto Performing Arts Center in Atlanta. She received the Mark Twain Award from the Society for the Study of Midwestern Literature in 2012. She taught creative writing and African-American literature at Central Michigan University for 15 years as a professor of English. Ms. Seaton, welcome to History's Hook. Oh, thank you so much, Tom, for inviting me. This is quite a pleasure. Thanks so much. The honor is ours. I'm also joined in the studio by my co-host, Murray County historian Joanne McClellan. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, Joanne. It's great to hear your voice. Ms. Seaton, before we get into your impressive career, I'd like to spend some time on your family and your childhood years in Columbia, Tennessee. Your family goes back several generations here. Uh, you've studied your family history. What can you tell us about your family origins here in Columbia and in Murray County? Well, well I was born at 904 East End Street, uh, and uh, I was born in the same house that my mother was born in. My grandmother was born in, and possibly in, in same same room. Uh, I can't um, testify on that. But um, my grandfather Will was a noted fisherman in Columbia in the in Middle Sea and took uh, all kinds of fishing. Took FDR fishing when he came to the area. He took Cordell Hell fishing. The uh, owners of WLAT, the doctors from the Harry and you know. Uh, the Ridley, uh, Will Ridley, Major Frierson were fishing buddies of his. So he was well, he was well known in the area. My great grandmother's uh, husband, John, was the chef at the Old Bethel Hotel, and uh, and he also was a cook at Columbia Military Academy. His wife, my great grandmother Emma Hatcher, was the child of uh, a member of the Hatcher family, and she uh, lived there until she married, and she's the child of, uh, of John Hatcher of the, the Hatcher family. They were had a very large estate in, in Columbia. And this was always something I knew. And when I asked my Aunt Gladys over the phone, excuse me, uh, on a, when I was interviewing her, she whispered his name, it, John Hatcher. It was something that was never discussed, but she was very close to the family. And when there, were, there was a, a funeral, anything of that sort, they'd always come to get her. I know I was told by my Aunt Camille and Uncle Randy that she, uh, they would take her out there and she would sit with them all day and then they'd bring her back. Hmm. I think the estate uh, is called Blythewood. Is that correct? Does Blythewood. That that's it. Blythewood. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Uh, she, she was born there uh, up on the third floor of the big house, as my aunt would say. Wow. Um, and she um, was given an allowance even after she married, because my grandmother used to say that uh, on Saturdays they would go up to the office of, um, of a family or it might have been attorney or whatever and would get money. says, here am I. Here's money for the children. Uh, so those things happen. You know, I'm sure it's not a unique story. This, uh, this is a truly American story. Absolutely. And then um, 
My father, Albert Brown, was a teacher. His father was a teacher and principal, Sam Brown. People that uh, might still know that name. He was quite, he was pretty strict. Uh, and, you know, nobody no, nobody wanted to go to his office. Let's put it that way. <laughs> a principal uh, at what school? He was principal at um, at uh, College Hill at one point, a teacher at College Hill. And he was also a principal in Mount Pleasant School. That was the Clark Training High School. Mm-hmm. Was it Clark Training School? He was also there. Okay. And that was in Nashville. Right. I think Clark Clark, Clark was Clark. in Mount Pleasant. On oh, Mount Pleasant, yeah. right? He was at, he was there too. And in the summers, he taught at Fisk. Uh, and I do know that he was um, murdered in his backyard in Nashville, and no one ever found really? uh, found out who did that. Wow. And that was uh, something that my father, his uh, who was uh, Albert Samson Brown Jr., that was a, a lifelong thing of his to, to to try to find out what what happened. How there. old was your father when his father was killed? He, my, my grandfather died before I was born. And I want to say like, okay, my father went to Fisk. He went, he um, started there when he was 15, graduated when he was 18. That was in 1933. And I think my, I have the record somewhere, but my step, my, excuse me, my uh, grandfather passed away in, I want to say 1938. Hmm. And that really changed life for my, my father, who was, I think, was planning to go on to be a doctor, but um, ended up going into business in, uh, in real estate, not here, but in uh, Ohio. I do know one thing about my grandfather is that early on in a now defunct Columbia paper, and I have a copy of it. He wrote a poem chronicling, uh, celebrating the life of his father, Charles O'Reilly Brown, who was a minister in Columbia. It's a very beautiful poem. And I think that the newspaper, and I can't remember the name right now, was something, a paper that was uh, much admired by the African-American community. So creativity and and creative writing sounds like it's a, a generational theme within your family. Yes, my grand my grandmother Emma was um, very uh, much the uh, declaimer. She went around uh, reciting Paul Lawrence Dunbar at uh, at churches, at weddings, uh, at teas. She and she would play ragtime piano at some of the uh, at the, the parties and festivities and church fundraisers. And she did minstrel shows. She was the the end man. Uh, and then her friend uh, Rebecca Johnson, her Johnson uh, mo- uh, mother, was the uh, interlocutor. They did those. Huh. So. Um, and the reason I want to reason I mention that is because another relative of mine, Flournoy Miller, went on to Broadway and wrote the book for uh, Shuffle Along, along with Ub Blake. He also he went to Fisk and made quite a name for himself there. Right, Mr. Miller so, has actually been. We've talked about him in a previous episode of History's Hook. Um, very influential in early uh, in early black entertainment. Let's talk right. about him for just a minute. It sounds like he was a real influence on your grandmother. Uh, and by extension, you as well. Uh, That's right. He 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 wrote uh, uh, the the is it a play? Is that how it began? Shuffle along uh, uh-huh. or a musical? Uh, and, and one of the famous songs I remember my parents singing the song when I was a kid. I'm just wild about Harry, who sort of became a, a right. quite a famous and popular song. Uh, mm-hmm. But shuffle along is hugely influential uh, after after its launch. It launched the careers of such notables as Josephine Baker, uh, the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, Paul Robeson, uh, the great opera star and activist as well. They're all influenced by Shuffle Along, which uh, you're... Florence Mills. 
uh, when uh, William Grant still was in the uh, orchestra, the, the famed African-American composer was in the orchestra, uh, and it, it was revived. It was a, there was a revival of it on Broadway a couple years ago. Uh, the making of Shuffle Along and the making of the musical with uh, Fabian Glover during choreography. I was actually invited to attend the rehearsal, but I couldn't make it because my husband. Uh, and uh, it's a. Uh, it's had, like I said, like you said, it has had quite an influence. And, and Irv, Irving Miller, uh, Florida Miller's brother, and also um, uh, Quintard Miller, they were also quite influential in their in their time. Yeah, I was just going to ask about them because when I was studying Florida, I found out that um, his brothers were so also involved. What about their connection to the Amos and Andy story? Well, Amos and Andy, um, he wrote well. For, Florida Miller, as far as I know, I, I, I used to read about it quite a bit, and I haven't really read that much about it lately. Um, he wrote quite a few of the, the early early scripts for it, and it's kind of a complicated story, and uh, there are a lot of ins and outs to it. I know that Flournoy also was nominated for a uh, Tony Award, I think, posthumously uh, for mm-hmm. his for his work. Uh, so I mm-hmm. I love these I love these stories that sort of go generationally, where you can where you can pick up these themes within a family. And certain certainly creative writing and music are one of those themes in in your family. Well, I want to say that um, I was told by Olive, my cousin Olivet, his daughter, that he wrote "Who's on First for uh, Abbott and Costello. Wow. <laughs> And if you, li- if you listen to it, it does sound a lot like a Florida Miller routine. Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I know that uh, comedians uh, like, you know, Jack Benny and Milton Berle and Bob Hope revered Florida Miller because they thought he was just the, the master of that comedy style. And, and what and this is an interesting thing, a quote from my um, my my cousin Olivet, whose daughter, his, his daughter who worshipped her dad, said that what Shuffle Along was was... Um, Black people making fun of white people making fun of black people. Right, right. Interesting. What about uh, uh, their dad that was uh, editor of the newspaper here, the Nashville Globe? You mean mean Lee Miller? Yes. Um, Well, I know, I don't know a lot about Lee Miller, but I I do know that... um, I know he's from Columbia. He went to Mount Lebanon Missionary Baptist Church, and his his wife Elizabeth went there too. I, I have a, a a big collection of old Nashville Globes, and that's where you see Lee Miller's name a lot. Right. Uh, and um, Lee and W. D. Kelly of the Kelly family started a black paper in Columbia that I've never seen a copy of. It's called, I believe, the Columbia Spotlight, hmm. and I. Uh, and somewhere there's got to be a copy of that paper somewhere. I've never seen one, and it doesn't seem to be in any archives. Not yet. We'll we'll keep an eye out for it. Certainly, keep you, an eye out for the Columbia Spotlight. <laughs> your your parents divorced uh, when you were still quite young, and you and your mother moved to Chicago's West Side. Why Chicago? Right, right. But I want to say before that, growing up in Columbia, my earliest memories were of my mother and her bridge club, the Bridgettes. And that was a very important part of my life. Describe yeah. why. Why 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 was that such an influence on you? That group Well, of women? I just remember um the women, the way they were dressed, the food, and I would was I was allowed to be there and it was it was a communal gathering. Uh, at, at that time I I didn't realize how 
re- realize it, but they were very elegant, and uh, it was as if they were going into uh, this very, very special world. And, uh, I, I want to talk more about this when we when we get into the play, sure, The Bridge sure, Party. Sure. I, I think that will sure, be a, sure. a wonderful time to talk about it. Talk, talk about Chicago. Sure. Why why did you move to Chicago? What brought you there? Well, I didn't have anything to do with it. it was never I I uh, my mother uh divorced my father when I was quite young and we uh, and when she married my stepfather uh we moved to Chicago and it was a real culture shock. I you know the small town like Columbia where everybody knows everybody uh you smile and see people uh walking down the street and uh that and so I did go back to Columbia for first and second and third grade. So I moved there for a while from the time I was, I want to say I was four and five, and then I came back to uh, Columbia for first, second, third grade. First grade teacher was Mrs. Hawthorne, Dr. Hawthorne's wife. Second grade teacher was my uh, my uh, aunt Ruth, Ruth Whitaker, uh, the mother of Jean Whitaker. And third grade teacher was my was my aunt Camille, uh, uh, Camille Howell. And so that was a really a great time for me, idyllic. And then I went back to Chicago again and, and went to uh, high school uh, there, uh, elementary school through high school there. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it, it was, a, it was a, a rough world. I, I, I made friends and I had a, I had a, I had a great time uh, making friends and you know, going to museums, doing all kinds of cultural things. But it was never the same as being in Columbia with uh, family. When you were in uh, Columbia, did you attend College Hill? Was that your elementary school? Yes, I went to College okay. Hill. And Mr. Porter was my mother's first boyfriend. She was, <laughs> she was either my mother's first boyfriend or a second boyfriend. It was Mr. Porter and Mr. Kimes was her. Those were the, her two um, high school sweethearts, Edward Kimes and Horace Porter. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, and I went to College Hill and, of course, knew Mr. Porter very well. I would stop by his office. Say good morning, Mr. Porter. Sandra, I think I told you this once before. When your mom was teaching out at the uh, Theater Rosenwald School, she lived uh-huh, with uh-huh. she lived with my grandparents, and Mr. Kimes came out to visit her. Oh wow! My mom told me that. <laughs> Uh, which Rosenwald school do you think that would have been? It's the Theta Rosenwald school in Theta. Uh huh. Theta. Yeah, uh-huh. that's what I thought. I mean, Theta. I remember my mother talking about Theta, and I wonder if she if she taught at Center Star also. Uh, I have not seen a record where she was at Center Star, but I'll look because I've researched all of those schools, and you know, my grandpa. When I was a little girl, when I when I lived. Uh, when we were still in Columbia, my mother would take me out to school with her. And okay. that was my earliest education going out there. And I remember doing that. Wow. I know when I came back here, I, I played bridge with uh, the bridge group at, in the 2000s. And of course, you know, Mrs. Kimes and Mrs. Howell were still members. And I can imagine mm-hmm. what that group would have been like 60 years earlier, because when I got here, they had been, you know, they had organized like 60 years before that. So I can imagine what the group would have been like with all of the other women. But I enjoyed the time that I spent playing bridge with Mrs. Kimes um, and uh, Mrs. Howell. And, you know, Mrs. Kimes was my my grandmother's first cousin. So I had a strong, yeah, strong family ties with the Kimes family. Miss Seaton, when did you begin creative writing creatively? 
Um, you know, before I mention that, I just want to say the other thing I forgot to mention was uh, was Mount Lebanon Missionary Baptist Church, because my family, you might mention this later, founded that church in 1843 along with, they were three of the seven founders, but that might come in later, right? Yeah, we can talk about that later, I think. Sure. Um, but uh, you were asking about... When, when About how old were you when you started writing creatively? Oh my goodness. Well, I was in... Well, you know, my grandmother would always have me recite. Whenever when people would come over, she'd have some poems she wanted me to recite. Uh, and uh, and then when I got to Chicago, I was in elementary school. I had a teacher named Ann Barzell, who was a dance critic of the Chicago American. And there was a little paper called the Pentagram, and I would write for that. Uh, and... As far as formally, at the University of Illinois, so after I graduated from Farragut High School in Chicago, I went to University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. I was the first person in my family to go, that didn't go to an HBCU, and they couldn't figure that out, but I, I went anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they even had a little meeting about it, but because uh, uh, everybody else had gone to Tennessee A&I or Fisk, yes, um, yeah. you know, like, what, what is she doing here? Uh, so I uh, went to University of Illinois, and I... Was going to be, I was going to be a journalist. And after taking, you know, a few of the journalism courses, I realized that I, there was this pull to creative writing. So I started taking the creative writing courses and I ended up majoring in creative writing. And I did also take a playwriting course there from a guy named Webb Molly, Mrs. Molly, and he was very encouraging. So that was my first serious, uh, attempt at being a, a creative writer hmm. when I took those courses at, at Illinois and I studied with uh, John Frederick Nim who was the um who helped start Breadloaf with, with Robert Frost and John Sciardi. Uh, Mr. Nims also uh, was the editor of Poetry Magazine for a while when Henry Rago uh, was on leave. So I, I had, uh, I think I had some pretty good teachers. And as far as the poetry goes, Mr. Nim was uh, was outstanding in what he was able to, to uh, pass on to me. And, you know, it was that coupled with my background my own family background. And I think the two of those things, those two things stayed with me. It's an really fascinating that you're, how you combined your life experience and then having these connections with these pretty renowned writers and poets in the period that are sort of making your career blossom. You did graduate work at Michigan State, is that correct? Yes. And and, and that was in creative, and that was a uh, creative writing also. Uh, it was, and I studied with, um, took a, uh, a graduate seminar with um, uh, with Robert with Robert Martin's Arthur Miller scholar and read all of Arthur Miller's work and he uh, was my thesis director and I wrote the bridge party as a part of my thesis uh, and as a matter of fact he had invited Arthur Miller there while I was there so I did get to him it was very nice really wow what an opportunity and yeah and so I did a lot of you know a lot of writing. Uh, as a graduate student, too, and just, just kept on writing. We will, uh, I want to get into your career. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Miss Sandra Seaton. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. 
Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we are having a conversation with Miss Sandra Seaton, a librettist, an award-winning librettist and author, uh, who hailed originally from Columbia, Tennessee, and went on to uh, really great fame for some of her plays uh, and uh, uh, other uh, things that she's written. Uh, Miss Seaton, you are the author of 10 plays. Your first was The Bridge Party, whose setting is the meeting of an African-American women's bridge club in a fictional small Tennessee town called Delphi in the 1940s. Now, you've already mentioned briefly uh, one of your earliest, most influential memories is watching these women in the bridge party. Uh, the women are based on actual people who are then living in Columbia. It's interesting to me that you fictionalized the name of the town, but you kept a lot of the people's names who are actually living here. What was your thought process behind that? Well, um, I don't, I'm not sure why. I think maybe at some point I was thinking about creating this fictional world. Uh, I, my mother was alive, and she didn't like the idea of, of my writing about anything personal. <laughs> and uh, uh, she wanted more of the name change in the bridge party. Mm. <laughs> and she and one night, I remember sending the play to her, and she was changing names and crossing out lines and putting in her own lines. And then she sent it back to me, and she said, oh, I stayed up all night rewriting that play. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I, uh, I kept a couple of her lines, but I, I, I kept her name. But she was great, and uh, of course, when she she got to see Ruby D do the play at uh, University of Michigan, and I think that that changed her mind. Uh, and she was in the play, and and I kept talking about how she, the way she was. I said, "Well, you're a star, mom. You're just a star." <laughs> and she was fine after that. So, so these ladies that you remember uh, as a child growing up here in the Bridge Club uh, had had a marked impact on you. And it, it seems to me you're you're really trying to recreate sort of that culture. In the play, The Bridge Party, it's beautifully written. Um, I think you mentioned in the book that you that the understated style of your writing uh, comes from a couple of different uh, forms. So the, the story sort of unfolds very slowly. Uh, and that understated style comes from foreign films that you watched while you were in college. I, I found that very fascinating. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, I... When I was in college at Illinois, there's the Film Society, and there were the, the new wave films. And if you know anything about, you know, the pace is fairly slow. And there's a big emphasis on, you know, getting into the individual characters. Uh, you know, the really, it's the close-up. And one thing I thought was missing in, in portrayals of African Americans, I thought a lot of it was cliche and 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 just um, not much of an effort to humanize. And you didn't see, you, you saw these movies about um, about about white women who were very elegant and uh, uh, were were you know were leading complicated lives but this was usually with the African American women was who was the maid or or who the cook or who cared for the children would have a few lines and very often comic and really it wasn't really who these people actually were in real life the people playing the roles very often you know they were outstanding um, actors, actresses, but uh, I just wanted to do something more to show, uh, to humanize uh, African-American women and show that show that they had complicated lives. And that's why I, I wrote the play, The Birch Party, and it was their reaction to an incident that I was familiar with. And I always, I'd always heard about Cordy Cheek as a child, uh, and that's all anybody ever said, was they, they mentioned it, but it was always there. And uh, I, I wanted to have it there in the play to show the reaction of the women to it. But knowing them, I, I knew that they would not 
because this is something, you know, that particular um, uh, type of thing, it's not that it happened all the time, but they lived in uh, at a time when... Um, when there was always the threat of of, uh, of a, uh, a racist uh, incident, and so uh, what this shows was the way they were able to persevere and, and find uh, uh, meaningful lives in, in spite of it, because otherwise there wouldn't have been uh, an, an African American, any kind of African American life. Uh, so I don't know if that makes sense, but that's it, that's it, it does it, it does. And and reading the play is an amazing experience for me. Uh, you're you're raising several points that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Your story unfolds subtly. It's full of the rich vernacular of these African-American women of the 1940s with wonderful descriptions of the design of the room. You go into great detail, you know, the books on the table, specific books on the table, you know, what these ladies would have been reading in the time, their character, their attire, the food that they eat, the aromas that you probably remember as a child attending one of these. It's really, really wonderful. It really draws the reader in. And I'm, I'm dying to see this on stage because I think it would develop this even even so much more. But it draws the reader into this world, at least for me, a 50-year-old white man, it draws me into this world that's, that's really quite foreign to me, but comfortable at the same time. I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever, but there's sort of this maternalism in, in this room, uh, this community in this room that I've not experienced in my own life, which I, I find very attractive. Their dialogue speaks to events in the culture of the time. The key event, as you're talking about, is awaiting the return of Cordy Cheek who is an actual figure in history, an 18-year-old boy who was accused of raping a white girl, was acquitted by a jury, and then was lynched. A horrible crime uh, in, in that time period, an actual event that took place here. So again, I'm intrigued that you're using sort of somewhat fictional fictionalism, but combining it with, with real history. Um, what prompted you to write about Cordy Cheek in this setting? Why, why that specific event? Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. You know, that is such an interesting question because, you know, if you're an African-American, you, you know, history is such a big part of your life. And there's no way to detach yourself from it. It's just, it's as if, you know, you're going on a trip, you know, and you have this this horse-drawn carriage and you say, well, I'm going to go on the trip, but I'm going to detach this a horse from the carriage. Well, you don't go anywhere. You just stand there, right? You just stay there. Mm. Um, and that's what happens, I think, if you try to write without being hitched up. Right. If that makes sense. It does. So it was just something that came naturally. Uh, and ideas as a writer, I, you know, I've had commissions where I've said, no, you know, with the Sally Hemings piece, we want you to write about Sally Hemings. I didn't pick that, but I, 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 I was very interested in it. But writing on my own, where do ideas come from? You know, that's an interesting thought. I can't say, uh, I can't, looking back now, uh, where they, where that particular one came, but I think the idea of the, the horse and the and the, and the, the horse carriage and, uh, and and them being hooked together to take you to that destination, maybe what the the Cordy Cheek lynching hit a chord uh, on a larger scale. His death was the chief discussion topic on college campuses across the nation in 1933. No less than the great poet and author Langston Hughes wrote about him. I, I think mm-hmm. I think this event uh, really struck a chord on a national level in in 19. 
1933, and and of course is going to culminate in another event that you're that you write a little bit about or, or allude to at the end of this play. Um, events unfold slowly and elegantly in this play. We learn about these women. We learn about their lives and to some degree their history. As you said, history is so much an important part of who we are, and I think you do a beautiful job in in doing that in in the form of a play. They are strong women, obviously. When confronted with white authority in the form of local police, they show the expected deference, but you make it clear in your writing that they are in charge of the situation. They're playing out a scenario that they have dealt with for a long time. They're navigating a racist world uh, and and succeeding in it. Can can you speak to that a little bit? Is that is that part of your own experience as well? Yeah, I think so. I think it is because... Uh... They're, well, they were relatives of mine. I've, I've talked to uh, my own relatives when they were alive. None of them are, are there now about uh, about their confrontations with police during the Columbia race ride, not because of the race resistance, or, uh, however we would want to to uh, to call it, uh, and and about the way they uh, they finessed uh, uh, when when they were confronted with the uh, the National Guard or the police that were that were there, and and just sort of got around them that way because. Uh, uh, when you're dealing with, with, with armed people, then you have to uh, be clever. Uh, and I knew that from, from my, 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 gran- my own grandmother, who was, who was very good at that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, I was watching her. And, uh, and, and one of my aunts, uh, who uh, was out the night, that night of the uh, race riot, and, uh, and was walking down the street, and a came up to her and asked her where she was going. And she said something like, born and bred in a briar patch. She said, well, go on. Mm. And, and that was that. Uh, uh, but by the same token, they would have been the same ones that would have given money to have Thurgood Marshall come to town and would have helped in any way they could with the resistance. Uh, one of my earliest memories, and speaking about memories, was my mother, when my mother was a teacher, she must have been teaching at Eda, and she was, um, uh, she didn't, we didn't have a car, but she would drive out there. I was in the car with her that at that time. This must, this was in 46. I was there with her, and um, Mary Morton's son, Jim, Jimmy Morton, was going out there to school with us because, you know, the schools were K-12, at least that's the way I remember them. You know, there were people of all ages there, right? So Jimmy must have been in the trunk the whole time. When we got to the, to the funeral home, and this is really, and you know, kids know when something is, is going on that you could, what I remember is that the tension was so thick, you could cut it. I mean, you could cut it. I mean, it was just, it was just, you know, and, and ch- children know this, animals know this. You just know this sort of thing when something's going on. So we got to the Morton funeral home. Uh, they um, opened the trunk. Jimmy gets out and runs in the house. And I'd never, and I remember that for the rest of my life because they were so afraid of this young black man being harmed. Mm. And I said, was that Jimmy or something? Yep. And he's just running in the house. And that's how things were that night. Was this the the day of the um, situation in Columbia? Was it the February twenty fifth when that was happening? Well, you know, I I don't, you know, I was I must have been three or four years old, okay. so that's all I remember because you know I know that the young men were being um, uh, was he, you know being arrested and this sort of thing, and the Mortons, of course, were already involved. Uh, but I think all that 
had a big effect on me when I was writing The Bridge Party. It's it's amazing. The Bridge Party was performed at the University of Michigan, starring, as you said, uh, the late actress Ruby Dee. Uh, What was it like seeing your work performed on stage for the first time? Oh, my goodness. It was wonderful. It was um, sort of an out-of-body experience. Because the thing about collaborating is once it's, it's almost as if it leaves you and then you see it there and you know it's a part of you. Um, it's magical because when you hear words that have been on the page, when you see them come to life, that's really fascinating. That's incredible. And that people are able to, to deal with them and, and improvise. We had, a, we had a really great cast that night. Uh, besides Ruby D, there were a lot of uh, veteran uh, L.A. Uh, actresses who came along uh, for the ride. When they heard Ruby D was going to be in the play, it was just um, it was, it was quite, 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 quite amazing. I, I, would, I would think that it would make you feel vulnerable at the same time. You're putting a part of yourself out there for these people to see and experience. Well, I guess the vulnerability starts when you write it in the first place. That's when you, when I really feel felt more vulnerable. Uh, and then you're vulnerable when you give it to somebody to read. To say you've read it and you think highly of it. You know, you just never know. And then when the Glenda Dickerson, who was the director, said, "Oh yeah, I want to do this," then you feel less vulnerable. Uh, yeah, I guess you're you're right though. There still is that that sense of uh, a vulnerability. Another play uh, that you've written is called The Will, which also takes place in the fictional town of Delphi, Tennessee. Uh, this play is really a take on your own family story. That's right. That's right. My grand, my um, great great grandmother and her great great and her parents, my great 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 grandparents. It was the great great was Eliza Webster, and the three greats were Annie and Dempsey Cherry. They were the three of the seven founders of Mount Lebanon Missionary Baptist Church in 1843. And I wanted to bring their story to life. I had seen Cyrus's will and and the beautiful writing. I had uh, found his grave, uh, their graves over at, at Greenwood. And, um, and, and, and I'd always heard this story from my Aunt Gladys, who, who was, was kind of the family historian after my grandmother had passed. I found a lot of things, about a lot of things from my Aunt Gladys, who was a uh, cook over at Carver Smith and the, uh, and the Sunday school superintendent of St. Paul for 50 years, as long as she was alive from the time she graduated high school, actually long now. But um, she told me the story about Israel, a young, one, uh, one of the... 22 kids that Cyrus and Eliza had at 14 lived to adulthood. She told me the story of how Cyrus, excuse me, um, Israel had sassed a white man, and when the Klan came to look for him, uh, Eliza had hid him under uh, a mattress. And that story stayed with me. And so that's a part of the will. Uh, and what happened to um, Cyrus is on Israel. So the char- Israel is one of the characters in the uh, in the play. And I just wanted to bring them back to life and story of this incredible person, Cyrus. I, I saw from, from his will, the beautifully written will, which is really a, a piece of literature. I, I, I wanted to know more about him. And I, I wanted to, to bring him back to life. And he was uh, came to Columbia in, eight, in the 1830 and, and, and brought, and this during slavery was able to purchase land over at Bear Creek from the money that his family had given him. He was raised by what I believe to be abolitionist uh, uh, 
uh, parents, uh, relatives, uh, he had a, a, a black mother and a white father. Uh, they, he was taught to read down in the basement. That, these, this I know from family stories. And when he was 18, they gave him money to start his own life, enough money to buy farmland. And he came to Columbia over by Bear Creek and, and bought land and uh, raised tobacco that I knew about him. And so I wanted to make a, a story about this uh, young man in 1830 of uh, uh, Africa. American that was able to make a life for himself. I just thought this was fascinating, and so that's how the will came to be. There, there was a real, there was a real revelation to me in reading this that what the will means to Cyrus, why he's spending time in writing this will. To to modern people today, writing a will is not a big deal. It's something that's pretty standard. But for a, a, a an African-American man in the late 1860s following the Civil War, the ability to write a legal document was important. And it's important to this character, this family member of yours, Cyrus, that he is leaving something behind, a legacy, and he has the ability to do it. Um, uh-huh. That was that was a wonderful moment for me to to come to that realization. Thank you, Sandra. Yeah, yeah. Sandra, I found a copy of his will, and I had heard about it when I first read your play a couple of years ago when you gave me copies. And I, uh-huh. I looked I looked it up again, and it is be- beautifully written. But I noticed he left something to someone named uh, Anderson Cheatham. And I, uh, who was Anderson, and was he a relative? Well, you know, these were all um, these were all children okay. of of Cyrus. And I one of the things I would really love to be able to do is to find out more about my relatives. And I know the Cheatham's were in Nashville. Uh, there's a Cheatham family, Doc Cheatham, the musician. And I would really love to know more about the Cheatham's. The, the other this thing, could have been a grandson. This was probably a grandson. Okay, okay. The other thing that I have been researching on another project is like the atrocities committed by the KKK back in the 1860s. And I have this report that's like probably 100 pages. And I ran across an interview that was done with Anderson Cheatham. And he talked about... Really? Yes. And he talked about... I'll email it to you. He talked about how the KKK was looking for Israel. And Israel was... Webster You're is... kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm looking at it right here. And oh my uh... goodness. So Israel is, magical. is Israel is mentioned here in this interview, but I couldn't and it mentioned that they were going to go to Israel's house. And this is probably where you wrote about his mom hit him on the bed under the bed. But before they went to the Webster house, they were at Cheatham's house. And it's <laughs> it's like fascinating. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the same person that you were talking about in the will. Oh. I have been researching the atrocities because of another project that I'm working on. And uh, this this uh, report was commissioned in 1868 by the um, Tennessee General Assembly. Well, because, you know, I I know about a few, you know, Cyrus, well, Cyrus and Life had 22 kids, and then uh, around seven of them died during smallpox. Um, mm. And... Uh, and the other one, the other ones, I know about, you know, a handful of them, but there are others I've just lost track of. I mean, this oh, is just, this is a fascinating part of Murray County history, I tell you. 
Oh my goodness, I'm so I would love to love it if you would share that with me. I wow. certainly will. Miss Eaton, oh as, as always happens on History's Hook, we're running out of time. I want to spend the last minute or so talking about your work from the diary of Sally Hemings, uh, a libretto okay. you wrote for that solo opera for the composer William Balcom. Um, the fictional work is a depiction of the innermost thoughts of Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman of mixed race who is believed to have had a relationship with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, how did the mm-hmm. project come about? Well, it came about with Florence Cuivar, uh, the um, mezzo, distinguished mezzo-soprano Florence Cuivar, who approached William Balcom and who wanted a piece about Sally Hemings. And then uh, William Balcom turned to me and asked me if I would write the libretto. Uh, I'd never thought about writing about Sally Hemings, but then I thought about, uh, you know, my own past, my uh, my uh, great-grandmother Emma, uh, who was a, 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 a child of a, of, a, of a hatcher, and uh, and I I did some research into the whole thing, and I and I, I agreed. And that's how I spent about a year look, doing firsthand uh, research, observe, uh, going to archives. I, I didn't go to the Monticello, and I hadn't met any of the attendants. But then at the premiere in 2001, the Library of Congress, they stay in touch with uh, the, the Sally Hemings descendants in Monticello and the Library of Congress. They're all kind of, they're connected, of course. And um and so 45 of the Sally Hemings descendants came to the premiere at Coolidge Auditorium Library of Congress, and I got to meet uh, meet them, and, and, and that's when I was vulnerable again because I was worried about whether they'd approve of this, but they did, and I got a, a nice note back from a couple of them, Shea Banks and um, Julia Jefferson, saying thank you for honoring our great, great, great grandma. Plus, they did like it, and so that, that really made it worthwhile. It must have felt amazing. I know William Balcom was a little reticent at the beginning to take on this project, but after reading your libretto was all in on it. He, he he comments and what a beautiful job you did. And a special challenge, I think, for you that Sally Hemings never left any written word. So you had to create no. something from your own mind based on all of the research that you put together. It must have been a, a, an amazing challenge. Well, here's the thing. I, I think going back to, to my play, The Bridge Party, what I wanted to do was to show um, another side of the African-American experience. I wanted to show this woman uh, who, uh, and I think there were, there were probably many others like her, uh, and, you know, just to present her as a, in a complicated, complicated manner. And one thing I did want to add about the Sally Hemings, uh, the solo opera song slash song cycle, is that uh, this summer it was supposed to be performed at uh, Glimmer Glass Opera in the Catskill, and it was canceled as a live performance. But Francesca Zambello, the uh, artistic director of Glimmer Glass, created a video about it, which is 60 minutes in length, that I would be happy to share with, with you and your audience. And uh, this was, uh, it, it was. Uh, as of, uh, I think it was August 27th, 29th, it was up on the Glimmer Glass website, and I was delighted with the uh, performance by Alice Cambridge, and it has great, great set. Uh, I've, I've watched the entire thing uh, on YouTube, so uh, we'll, we'll put the link up uh, on, on the website so people can enjoy it.
we're we're out of time today, but it's it's wonderful work. Uh, Sandra Seaton, thank you so much uh, for spending the time with us today. Thank you for your contribution uh, to to the arts to our nation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so much, Joanne. It's been an honor to be here with, with you. Uh, I'm a big, big uh, admirer of your work and, uh, and also, you know, I'm from Columbia, Tennessee. Right. <laughs> and and thank you. And uh, I will send you that information and maybe we can get the bridge party down here one day. Well, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. I'll end the show with this quote. Because racism was then legally entrenched and publicly justified, it was a significant accomplishment to build a life with ceremonies and rituals affirming the integrity and importance of our own friendships and families of our own lives. In my childhood memories of life in the South, the world of the personal and the private, of everyday life with its ups and downs, is particularly important. To me, this is a tribute to the tacit but adamant refusal of the grown-ups I knew to allow themselves to be defined by racism, but instead to live as full human beings, whatever the obstacles. Those are the words of our guest today, Sandra Seaton. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. Join us again next week for another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster. 